Welcome to Deploy Friday, the podcast for cloud technologists and developers. Be brave, be confident. It's okay to deploy on Fridays. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Robert Douglas, and this is Deploy Friday, the webcast brought to you from platform.sh, where I talk to amazing guests about the coolest internet technologies that are out there, great web applications, great open source projects, all of that. Today, we have two guests joining us to bring you everything that's new in the world of JavaScript, including TypeScript and React and you name it, it's going to be part of the show today. So please welcome with me uh, Stefan Adolf and Hello. Sarah Dion. Hi. Hi, both of you. So I'm going to give you a chance to introduce uh, yourselves. I've worked with Stefan uh, quite frequently because he lives in Berlin and I live in Cologne and we uh, kind of meet at conferences all the time. This is my first time talking to Sarah, but Sarah works for a, a company called Algolia, which I'm very familiar with because they provide world-class great search uh, with a, an amazing uh, JavaScript-based uh, front end. So I know that Sarah knows exactly what she's doing. So Stefan, go ahead and tell us about yourself and uh, your company. I try to make this very quickly and I will mention the name of the company only once. It's called Tobini Kreuzberg and I have the best job title in the world given by them. It's Developer Ambassador and uh, this means I'm getting paid for doing what I'm currently doing. Not only that, I'm also supporting all the projects at our um, company with, with new technology and help them if, if they are stuck with something old or something. This is basically um, me in a nutshell, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big JavaScript enthusiast. Uh, I also love all the other developing uh, programming languages, and I have a very long PHP background. So this is positive and negative, but today I love JavaScript. Thank you. So Sarah, tell us about what you do with Algolia. Hi, so I'm Sarah. I'm a software engineer at Algolia. So if you don't know Algolia, we're a search company. We provide search as a service. So it fits really well in a JavaScript ecosystem, in an SPA, in the Jamstack website. And so I work in the DX chapter, developer experience chapter, where we take care of many, many aspects. We take care of documentation. We take care of the numerous SDKs that you can use to index and search in your data. We have 11 of them in 11 languages, different languages, including JavaScript. We also uh, handle uh, UI components in vanilla JavaScript, React, Vue, and Angular. And finally, we offer uh, a great free product called DocSearch. So if you've used any piece of documentation out there, chances are that the search was powered by DocSearch. If you go on the React, Vue, uh, uh, I, don't, I think Node even, uh, like Bootstrap, anything like that, you will see if you use the search that you will see Algolia at the bottom. So that's what our chapter does. Uh, we take care of developer experience. We make sure that you have the smoothest experience when you interact with Algolia. And so uh, on me, uh, I'm mostly a JavaScript developer. I do, uh, I do TypeScript, I do JavaScript. My favorite UI framework is Vue.js, but I also dabble a little bit with React. And like you, Stefan, I have a PHP background, probably not as long, but I started with PHP even before it was object-oriented. And oh those are uh, very, very fun memories. It's yeah, right? Long. Yeah, let's say it's a stone age. It's very, yeah, right. very long. Exactly. 
Cool. Thank you, Sarah. So, Stefan, you have done the great task of preparing a massive list of great topics of stuff that is new in the JavaScript world. What are you going to kick it off with? This is exactly what I was wondering. In the first place, when I started preparing that, I was wondering, could we show that to the people? But uh, trust me, this will blow your mind away. There are more than 20 slides completely packed with new stuff. We tried when we assembled that to put it like every JavaScript developer, every TypeScript developer out there should take something away. So this is not really centric, uh, let's say along Gatsby or React or something. We tried to assemble uh, news that are really relevant to everybody if you do JavaScript on your daily work. And the first thing that I would like to talk about is a news that I think is now two weeks old, maybe four, I cannot remember exactly, but it's TypeScript 4, 4.0 to be precise. TypeScript is, if you, if you don't know that by any chance, is a, let's call it a language add-on, like it's, it's JavaScript with types. This is why it's called TypeScript. And um, it's really hard to, to, to explain the basics of what's really new in 4. Maybe you don't even notice that this is new, but there is the first thing I would like to talk about is uh, um, variadic tuple types. Now, many of you might know, know these, these little REST operators, uh, which allow you to, to spread arrays, right? So you can destructure arrays or classes by using these three little dots. And um, there is a good example at their website, which is um, the, the concat function. If you, would, uh, if you would write a concat function type safe, you are actually not really able to do so in TypeScript 3.9. But in TypeScript 4, they introduced these little spread operators for types, which means you can put them um, as type hints um, in, in parameters and in return values. So you, you can be very sure that what you are hinting towards is actually typed the way um, you, you, you declared it. Now, I, Sarah, I'm not sure about you, but I have no real clue if this has some meaning for the real-world developers who's writing a concat function anyway by themselves. Have you ever done that? Right. Uh, and one of the things, and you know, I'm very, uh, for now, I'm pretty clueless with the fourth version, the fourth installment of TypeScript. But what I'm wondering is what it solves, because from that concat example, I'm, I'm because basically the idea is to solve the problem of being able to provide a tuple with any numbers of a given type, right? How, uh, so, okay, so how isn't it something that you can solve with just providing uh, as a type, like uh, an array of that, an array of that, uh, of that type? I mean, tuples are, are, are very common in software development. Usually you don't okay. use them because they're not, 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 not really named. And uh, this is why, why they get so ugly. But usually you, you always have them, for example, and if, 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 you, if, if you hand over parameters to functions, mm. you always have an array of values and they have a certain ordering. And this is what's called a tuple. Um, right. I'd be interested if someone, like, if someone watching live can give us uh, like maybe a before after of what we would get in TypeScript uh, for the, yeah, with, with, that, new, with that, that new feature. I'd be really intrigued. If somebody of you out there knows what this is really about. I mean, there are some examples, but they mostly are just about you. Look, I mean, I know what this is good for. Like you, you can, mm. if you just describe and the return value is an array of this type and of this type, you don't know in which ordering it is. But these mm. new, new variadic tuple types allow you to say, and the first three elements are of type string and the last three elements will be of type number. 
Got that, but <laughs> I don't see the real point. Usually, I'm not using that. But of course, if you are a library um, a developer, you will definitely. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that you guys both questioned the utility of one of the big features of this release because I was already questioning the utility of the class property type inference from constructors. You mentioned that already, right, Stefan? I think so. No, we didn't. But okay, we well, let's introduce that. That's next on the slide. And I, I can, uh, I, since I introduced it uh, ahead of schedule, I can explain what uh, it means since we don't have the slide for the audience. Imagine that you've got um, properties of a class. So you've got a class called a rectangle, uh, and you've got a, a length and a width property and an area property. Okay. Now, normally you would give those types because it's, Type script, right? That's the whole point, is giving the uh, everything strongly typed values. But this new feature allows you to skip giving those a type and go and, and it will infer the type by whatever you say the constructor is supposed to take. So if I have a constructor that takes two numbers, then it will infer by the way that I'm using those in the constructor function that the length and width are supposed to be numbers. And I scratched my non-existent beard thinking, why would you have typing be such a strong feature of your language and then put an inference in there where you are saving the programmer what? The work of typing the type. <laughs> Exactly, you're saving keystrokes, and of course, <laughs> maybe typos. I don't know, but this comes in handy because you always uh, you always repeat the types. Actually, right? If you say, okay, hey, this is a class, got a number, and it's a width. No, sorry, got got a width. It's a number, and here's the constructor. It gets the width. You guess what it is? It's a number. It makes some sense to to, to skip over them. Even I mean, uh -huh. this is a very simple example, but it, types can get very long. You can, for example, have combined types where you say it can be a number or a string. It can even be undefined. And if you repeat this, then you see that it saves you lots of typing because it's just a pretty really. Yeah, and I, th I, Go ahead. I think it's also all about readability. Like uh, type inference is very important, especially in TypeScript. I think it's pretty well done. I know that uh, there might be like there are some really advanced typing uh, in other languages, but TypeScript has gone a, a long way. And you actually don't want to clutter your JavaScript code with types. You want to infer as much as possible. The goal is not for you to define a type for everything, but to type what cannot be guessed by the, the program and then let the logic of TypeScript decide, okay, you, you have a violation here or there. So inference is actually really interesting because TypeScript is supposed to say, to take the minimal amount of typing and then like be smarter than you. So I think that's pretty interesting. I don't, I don't actually use uh, ES6 classes. I'm a, I'm a big uh, function person. I love uh, factory functions. So uh, this is not a feature that I use a lot, but I know that many folks use it and definitely not having to repeat types makes a lot of sense. Cool. Okay. Well, I stand corrected. A very, good, a very good term, actually, like returning a function, I assume. And in TypeScript, you can get absolutely mad. There's, there's, there's more code that defines how something's supposed to look like than the code that it's actually generating. But it helps you so tremendously if you have a good uh, um, IDE and you have ESLint, for example, that tells you, I, I guess you, you don't want to do that. And you always tell them, yes, I want to. And then you notice, no, the machine is right. I don't want to do that. This is the real magic uh, of professional TypeScript development, I'd say. 
Yes, and th that example is pretty pretty simple, but actually, like because here you're basically passing a number, b number, and you're assigning it to uh, to attributes to uh, to properties of your class. But you could do something very very complex inside of your constructor, and ending up when you when you hover that uh, a property, end up with something as you said, Stefan, that is pretty long. You don't want to write that. Uh, and you will probably get it wrong if you do it yourself. You want the program to do it and infer it from code and let you know if you've done something wrong. The goal is not for you to write more code, but to leverage that superset of JavaScript to tell you when you fucked up. Mm -hmm. I stand illuminated. That sounds actually really cool. Now that I understand the level at which the IDE support would go in and give me those contextual clues and, and, and how this aspect of TypeScript that I didn't understand, uh, how you can have multiple typed properties. It can either be a frog or a duck. These are things you can definitely do on, on TypeScript and there are reasons. I mean, a frog and duck is not the best example, but in component world, it, it starts making sense. Cool. No examples here. Our audience might have very good examples. So what's the, next? The next one is, uh, so just, just, to, just to complete this one, there are new, circ my God, the word is wrong, circuit assignment operators for, um, a bit, not bitwise, but for logical operators. You know, these little bars, we're saying or, and, and the two new um, question marks, which is, I don't know, uh, sorry, do you know the name of that? I forgot that actually, but um, it's a, not the coalescing operator. It's uh, the, the one with double, the, the double, uh, double question mark is the coalescing operator. Yes. A coalescing operator. Yeah, the or the, I have yeah. no idea what that is. Explain it to me. So the idea of that, that operator, when you have the double uh, question mark, is that it will allow you to short circuit when the value on the left hand side is either undefined or null. Because right now, if you want to say, okay, the value of that new variable is either this or that. And usually you will do this or that. So this would be uh, if the left hand value is falsy, you will go right to the right hand. The problem is that sometimes if it's false, you might want to keep false and you will only want to go to the right hand side if the left hand side is either null or undefined. And that is the, the subtle difference between the coalescing operator and the or operator. If that so it, makes sa sense. it saves the programmer a whole bunch of is null is type of Absolutely, Yes, things. absolutely. Absolutely. If ah. it's there, take it. If it's not there, take this. Yes. Like the okay. default more or less. Why do they call it a coalescing operator? Maybe somebody in the audience who has a better command of the English language than I do, I'm looking at you, Larry, can explain to me in the comments why it's called a coalescing operator. That makes no sense to me. We'll wait for the asynchronous answer on that one. It's the same with, with Germans. Uh, uh, pronouncing that alone is, is, is a real pain for, for me, but I try my very best. <laughs> now, this is, I think the coalescing operator is not something that's uh, new in TypeScript. What's new in TypeScript is this short-circuiting assignment. So you have a question mark, question mark equals, <laughs> which allows you to even do assignments when something is null to the one before. And uh, I mean, if, if, if you don't like typing, so it, it, it saves you lots of ifs and thens, right? So you, you can remove all this logic, you can just use these, but well, 
the audience of your code should be able to read it in the end. I'm yeah, something that might make it more familiar is like, have you ever seen code where you would say uh, this, uh, this variable, which is a number plus equals a number? Like, okay, you have A that is equal to 10 and you will do 10 plus equal 10. So that would end up being 20 instead of saying A equals A plus 10, which kind of feels redundant. So that's the same idea, the short-circuiting assignment operators with the or, and, and the coalescing operator is that uh, you will automatically assign it based on that logical operator instead of saying this equals this plus this or this and this coalescing. So I think now we talk quite a bit of TypeScript, just the last thing, um, uh, exceptions now can also get a type which is for PHP developers. I think in PHP, they introduced this five years ago or so. In Java, I remember that. Also, I have been a Java developer once. They introduced that in 2011, if I remember right. I mean, no, types of exceptions always have been there, but like variable types of, of exceptions in Java came into the language in 2010 or 11, I guess. And in TypeScript, now you also have a type for your exceptions. Which can That's help. awesome. And from the audience, asynchronously, as I had hoped for, Larry has provided the explanation that coalesce means to grow together into one body in the English language. In programming, it means to build a chain of value options. And SQL also has a coalesce function. PHP has a question mark, question mark, and a question mark, question mark equals operator as well. It's really useful, says Larry. Thank you, Larry. In PHP, you even got this Elvis operator. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Today's type is JavaScript day, right? Yes. So PHP for the next time. Okay, I, I have an um, advertisement um, interruption here. Uh, not for me, but for TS Migrate. So if everybody is now completely blown away by what's so new in TypeScript, and you're still stuck on the JavaScript side, you might wonder, okay, what's the best way to migrate my project? The first thing you most obviously will do, you will uh, rename all your JS files to TS files. Well, that's a simple one, right? And then everything will break when you compile it with, with TypeScript because TypeScript screams at you and says, oh, all the types are missing. Everything is just any. Implicit any, actually. This is what TypeScript doesn't like if you don't tell it. So it says, well, you say any? No, oh, no, no. I want the real type there. This means you have to provide this colon any in TypeScript and say, yeah, please annotate it everywhere with any. So the TypeScript comp compiler is happy. And the people over at uh, Airbnb worked with JavaScript for a long time, I guess. And then they, they, they thought, hmm, maybe we should migrate our code base to TypeScript. And they came up with a project. And this is quite new. It's called TS minus migrate, TS migrate, which is even launching a language server that can, you that can be attached if I understood it right to Visual Studio Code. And then you can take your code base written in JavaScript, hit a button, and this is compiled to quite good TypeScript code. This is what they use in production, I guess. So there are, I guess, uh, around 16 plugins for various uh, language uh, features. And they also got type inference, automatic type inference for React function class, uh, function components and React class components. So yeah, if you want to get started, maybe this is your best friend. I don't know. I didn't try that. I just found it. I was quite blown away. Yeah, and so from what I'm seeing, I, I was not familiar with it, but like the steps are pretty interesting. So from what I'm seeing, you have a JavaScript project or a JavaScript and TypeScript project. And so first they will initialize your tsconfig file, which is the, the basic, like the, the, entry, uh, the entry file that you need to have a TypeScript project. Rename all your JS to uh, JS to TS, JSX to TSX. 
And finally, it will run some code mods on your code base. And I think that's the very exciting part is that you will have a bunch of uh, code mods running on your on your program. And so you will be left at the end, uh, portion, fortunately, uh, hopefully, I would say, uh, at the end with very minimal work. And like among the many co uh, code modes that I'm seeing, uh, one that is really interesting is that when you have a React project, uh, you have something called prop types. And prop types is a separate package, but that you usually use in, in React, where you will be able to type your um, like your components. Like you will be able to say, okay, this is a, an object, or this object has this shape, etc. And the prop types are not supposed to be um, to run in production. That's more for development mode, uh, from from what I remember. And so from those, you'll be able to like TS Migrate is going to be able to infer the TypeScript types, and that's pretty pretty powerful because if you did. Uh, your job well with React prop types and you really went far into documenting the shape, whether it's a, it can be null, whether it's, uh, it's mandatory or not, uh, you're going to end up with pretty robust types. And the prop types was actually, I, I guess, some years before TypeScript uh, came up. Right. This is why many developers still, maybe you still use them, so I haven't used them quite quite a while. But since you got the types annotated anyway, I think migrating to TypeScript is not that not that hard. But it's quite a struggle to write a machine that's doing that for you. And this is what they so maybe it's helpful. I hope so. You can also do it by hand if you have one thousand uh, source code files. Good luck. You need very good grep uh, skills to to make that happen. Or AWK and SED, whatever. I'm the Linux guy, but I don't know that AWK stuff. Shall we proceed to what's new in ECMAScript? Yes, and I'm not exactly sure if this is really new because ECMAScript 2020, of course, is specified for more than, I don't know, I guess four years because people do this ahead of time. And the most um, like exciting thing in it is the last point in our list. I will just hint you to that. It's optional chaining, knowledge coalescing. The optional chains, this is what's so powerful, right? You have an, a kind of, of, of nested object structure and saying, okay, from the product, the shipment, the address, if this one is now then shipped to me. If this product, shipment, address, and the name of the customer starts with an A, then send it to someone. And if something in that chain is zero, is null, then you have a problem. This is why you always say, okay, if this object is null, then please do this. But with this um, knowledge coalescing, you just say, okay, question mark dot, question mark dot, question mark dot. If some object is maybe null, then don't follow the line and then you're done. So you don't have to take care about anything being null in the line. This that's optional chaining. That's the uh, knowledge coalescing is oh a, a little different. But yeah, like the, the, the optional chaining is really, uh, really cool. And I think this is something that already exists in some other languages, such as Ruby. In Ruby, you already have that. And that will avoid all those, like, let's say, yeah, you have a deeply nested object. It will avoid that uh, uh, A and AB and ABC and ABCD to access that deeply nested value. You can simply add a, uh, a question number before every, uh, every dot, every, uh, is it comma? No, period, sorry. Uh, before every period, and basically it will, it, it will, turn into that expression that you would have done like and, and, and. 
So I just I typed a, an example of that into the chat. Uh, if anybody's having a hard time following all of the spoken punctuation of code with the dots and question marks. I think it's getting better. This is now when, when you talk about new language features, you have to improvise a little bit, but I think we're doing still quite good. I hope at least. I hope. And uh, we're not talking about Lisp, right? I mean, that would be really hard to convey uh, verbally. Imagine you got three curly braces and then there are two rectangular. I don't know. Okay, uh, this, is, this is really bad. So let's continue with the ECMAScript news because this was just the most, I think, wanted for feature in ECMAScript 2020. This is why I would like to put it first. Everybody knows it's in there and now here comes the magic. If you have Node 14 and, or if your project uh, relies on Node 14, this should work right out of the box. So Node, Node 14 comes with most of these ECMAScript 2020 features right after you installed it. By the way, uh, Sarah, how are you installing Node on your machine? Do you use any tools? Uh, I think I use, I simply use Homebrew. I'm on a Mac and I use Homebrew. So first thing I do whenever uh, I either re um, reinstall my OS or I get a new computer is that I install Homebrew and then I do everything from that, including installing Node globally on my machine. Mm, but then, then you usually have one Node version right? Uh, let's say 12 or something that's global yeah. for everybody. What, what if your project requires a node 14? Then what you can do is install NVM, which is a node uh, version manager or something like that, which uh, is going to allow you to switch between node version. And uh, what's really powerful is to inside your project, you can add a, a dot file called NVMRC and specify the version, the minimal version that is required by your project, which will hint NVM to automatically switch from your shell whenever you are in that project. So you are saving uh, those keystrokes to your developers. NVM is also how we advise Platform SH hosting customers to most fully control the version of Node that they run on their projects, which is just best practice given all of the potential version conflicts that you can run into. I'm not uh, sure. Stefan, just to interrupt briefly, we do have a question about the previous topic that I'd like to get to before we move too far on. So regarding the const customer city equals invoice question mark dot customer question mark dot address question mark dot city semicolon. Example. <laughs> Carlos M asks, so would this avoid exceptions only, or is there other utility in this other than avoiding the exceptions? Yeah, so it will avoid exceptions, and what it will do is that uh, it will return undefined if anything is not is not defined in the chain. Like if you don't have a customer, if you don't have an address, it will simply stop and return undefined. So your variable, like you may have uh, an exception down the road if you are expecting another type of value and you're trying to uh, to do something on undefined that you cannot do but it will avoid the, uh, the exception while you're trying to deeply access. And so what it will avoid you to is really writing that long string of end, uh, end expressions. But Thank the, you. It definitely saves you. definitely saves you from null pointer exceptions in that sense, yes. right? It's all NPEs. It's undefined. Undefined doesn't have a method concat, yeah. You will never hit that with this kind of construct. But you must, so if anything in that chain is null, then the result is null. You have to be prepared for that now. But it's safe. But with safe script, you would know. Yeah, 
Absolutely. TypeScript will tell you this can be undefined and you know why, because you assume even with, with these question marks that it cannot be null. How can this be null? Hmm. But TypeScript tells you. Just to, to, to uh, yeah, so NVM discussion is over now, but I can also recommend don't install Node on your machine because, well, if you need another version, it's, 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 it breaks something, right? So NVM is saving you from everything. It's so great. Just say, I need version 13 something because my customer is that. NVM install that. You're done. And if there are any cloud native people watching, if you want, you can do this in Docker containers. But this gets really slow if you use node modules. Package managers. Maybe we get to that in a, in a second. Okay, what's what's new in ECMAScript 2020? Just read along this one. There's a new match all operator, which keeps you from, oh, we have to iterate over a regular expression matcher because every time we, we call it, it will yield another uh, another match. Match all and you're done. What I haven't found, Sarah, I'm not sure if you maybe have seen that. Is there also a string replace all that's generic now in JavaScript? I haven't seen the replace all, uh, but basically what I would uh, imagine that it does is that you can provide uh, like your needle as a string instead of providing it as a regular expression. Because if you wanted to, re to replace a value with something else, you would have to provide the needle. Like if you wanted to do it globally, uh, you would have to provide it as a regular expression with the global flag. And so I guess that the replace all method now allows you to do it with a string, which, but that, that's only guesswork. I haven't checked. Uh, I haven't checked it, but that would, I guess, be a lot faster because you still get performance uh, hits by either writing a regular expression with the shorthand, the shorthand, the shorthand, uh, it's not really shorthand, but like, you can either use the constructor or not. Uh, and if you, uh, yeah, the literal version. So uh, you can write a regex literal, which is fine, slower than a string. But if you use the, the constructor, if you, if you do new regex, which is mandatory, if you need to have a dynamic regex, then you get uh, also another uh, dent in performance. So that's pretty interesting. If you have to do a replace on a string, even dynamic, and you can do it globally, uh, that's pretty nice. Yeah, regular expressions are quite slow, even though you maybe not notice that if you just execute them once on your machine, but they can hit you really hard if you execute them a thousand times and always um, uh, um, construct them. Instantiating them is also costing quite a computing time. Uh, one thing I was quite, I was really waiting for is promise all settled. Oh my God, finally. The promise API, when have this been introduced? I think ECMAScript 2015, year six, I guess. Where at least could have, you, you had this concept of native promises. And you, then, of course, you had the, the usual suspects. You can say, okay, if it's, um, if it's resolved or if it's rejected, and uh, do something if all of them are resolved. But what you didn't have was okay, give me some, or return me something if all of them have finished doing things, have settled. And this is now in there, promise all settled. So even if they failed, they, if, if, you, if, you tell, if you tell this, this promise list to, to call back if all of them are settled, there is, I guess there is no exceptions thrown, thrown, but you can now react on the final result of, of all of them. And if one of them failed, well, you're a developer, you have to solve that. <laughs> yeah, and th that's pretty nice because it uh, basically tells you if there are no uh, promises pending. That's, that's the point. 
And that could be really interesting, especially if you like, let's say you're building, you're building a crawler and you're waiting for JavaScript to finish before you crawl, you may want to wait for all promises to, to resolve. And so that could be very interesting for you to know, okay, even if that thing failed, that's okay. I want to know because now I know that this is a signal for me to start crawling the page. Last, maybe very important thing, are the dynamic asynchronous imports. So you can await a dynamic import. And the what you import, usually you, you import from a, from a string. The string is either a file next to you or it's, it's a file from node modules. But now you can give these, these beasts um, a dynamic string. You can say import, uh, today is a Monday, so please import from the Monday's uh, component library. And on Tuesdays, you import from the Tuesday's component library. And these are even asynchronous. So you can import um, uh, during runtime, it will load that uh, build JavaScript file. Not only that, but also like uh, we are talking uh, ES, uh, ES imports. Um, and this is uh, like adds up to the ES imports because right now, if you're using ES imports, this, is, this has to be static and this has to be at the top of your file. It cannot be conditional, it cannot be dynamic. So if you've been used to Node with the, the require syntax, which basically allows you to do anything, it can be required dynamically, conditionally, anything like that, you cannot do that with ES imports that are supposed to be static. And that's what import fixes. And for example, that's really interesting when you want to do tree shaking, if you're building a web application, and you have many routes, you don't necessarily want to uh, have all the code for all the routes of your application in the initial bundle. Let's say you have 200 routes, but I only visit two. I don't want to load the code for all the rest. And I might only want to do it once it's loaded or uh, you want to do it if it's like you want to lazy load it or do it just in time. So that's pretty powerful and that's, I think how Webpack already uh, tree shakes a lot of the uh, a lot of the applications. Like if you're using React or Vue, you usually have that built in when you're using Create React App or a Vue CLI. All the routes will be tree shaken that way with this uh, this new dynamic asynchronous imports. Time out. I'm gonna do my main job as the host of this web show and say, what the hell is tree shaking? Oh, that's a really, really cool uh, question that I'm really passionate about. Do you want to start, Stefan? Uh, since you're so passionate, you can definitely do that. Yeah. But I, maybe if you would like, uh, no, no, I will, I will do the aftermath. And by, by the way, I've already, I've already uh, got Sarah, colon, passionate tree shaker. All right, exactly. <laughs> so tr tr tree shaking uh, is, uh, I don't know who coined that term. I think it's Rich Harris. Who uh, who's a developer at the New York Times and who built Rollup.js. I think he coined the term, but I'm not actually sure. But tree shaking and that concept does not, it's not only JavaScript. Basically, it's uh, dead code elimination or life code inclusion, depending on the method. And the idea is to, uh, during a build step, when you build your code, is to statically analyze the code to remove anything that wasn't used. So let's say like the, the, the easiest example is when you're importing a library like Lodash. Lodash is filled with helper functions, but you may use only a small part of it. You will use two functions out of 200. Well, 
what is going to be interesting is for you when you compile to only include those two functions in the final build and to remove everything else everything that was not called in your code you can safely remove it your compiler uh, either Babel, webpack whatever can safely uh, remove it and that's something that actually when you're using static imports that's something that you can do because you can statically analyze the code and know this, I, ne I never imported it. So it's okay, I can keep it out of the bundle and you're gonna get a very small bundle. And so the concept of tree shaking can also be used uh, with the idea of routes. Like let's say you have five routes in an application, you have your home, about and whatever, but your users will, uh, like, they only need a very few amount of JavaScript to run the application. They don't need all the routes right away. So you're going to be able to split. So that's, that, uh, it, this is not actually tree shaking, but that's called code splitting, but that's uh, relies uh, on the same, the same mechanisms. It's going to be able to say, okay, I'm going to logically split the code into those uh, smaller bundles. And when you load my website or application, I'm going to give you the bare minimum, the runtime, and I'm going to give you the code for the exact part that you asked for. Precisely. So it, it's more or less based on code analysis. You, the, the, in our example, Webpack is trying to figure out what's going on here, and then it figures out, well, this code is never called, so we can throw it away. And this feels like tree shaking, right? You shake a tree and the apple's going down, and you don't eat them. Everything that stays up is still healthy. <laughs> and then you deploy the tree, the remaining. I love it. I, I think that I too will in the future be an enthusiastic tree shaker. <laughs> let's, let's fast forward a little uh, because Webpack 5 is now in beta. You guess it 29. So they got 29 beta versions. And I guess many of the watches here are using Webpack for the projects because Webpack is one of the de facto standards. Hands up on the YouTube channel who's using Rollup or Parcel. I'm a big Parcel fan, actually. But Webpack is, from my point of view, one of the big standards. Because it's so modular, right? And uh, in terms of tree shaking, they will introduce um, something. So I, I'm, I'm an old Node developer. And I've been using Webpack quite, quite long, also for Node projects. And... Uh, <laughs> I, as far as I also remembered, Webpack 4 couldn't deal or couldn't apply tree shaking on these require imports. So if you have this common JS imports, tree shaking wasn't working. It only worked for the uh, ES6 imports or ECMAScript. But now it works, which means you don't always have to like figure out how to how to tell uh, your JavaScript code base <clears throat> to remove things that are not used by cross-compiling or using these ES imports. You can just stay in the node code and it's also tree shaking. That's quite good. I think IE11 is now, how do you call it? Is it dead? Is it dead now? It's, it's, it's obsolete, right? Is anybody using yeah. IE11? It's no longer supported. I think like it's being sunsetted or like, I don't know in the, the life cycle of, uh, life cycles of uh, softwares from Microsoft, how they call that, but basically they're dropping support. They're dropping, uh, yeah, they, they announced the, the sunsetting and like the, the cycle will, is either, Either we hit it or it's going to be in the future. But basically, we know that there is a time limit now on that browser, which is really nice for any front-end developer out there. This is a very nice news. And this is why Webpack 5 will drop the default generating of ES5 codes, because they only got it in there 
supporting it with massive polyfills blowing up your code to support that IE11 browser. No, this is uh, not the default anymore. So the new the proud is- long history of Internet Explorer browser forcing many times as much work as was actually needed for any web project. Yeah, it's 5% doing it to 100% and then 95% to fix it for Internet Explorer. This is exactly my history. The story of my life, actually. It's yeah. So drop default support is actually an American euphemism, euphemism for take it out back and shoot it, which is what it deserves. Don't be so hard. I mean... It was it was the ma- the major thing back in two thousand three. I guess everybody used Internet Explorer, but since then it started to smell. I'd say. Hmm. Yeah, let's just skip about uh, over, over that one and come to to the to the like hilarious things. I'm now on slide twelve, just for internal usage. Some libraries we're excited about, and um, I mean, if you tell something new about JavaScript, <laughs> there's always this one new library or then one new framework. Yet another JavaScript framework, who guessed it? And I was looking a little bit uh, around what, I mean, there are every, you know, every day there are new frameworks coming out for JavaScript, and here is one that has been crafted by a one-skilled person who wasn't, um, I guess he, 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 he didn't like view that much, and he wanted to go the svelte way a little bit, but maybe he had some Angular background and liked the dependency injection, but then he was missing out Redux. And so with, with, with all this stuff in his mind, he came up with a library called Joist. Now I have to spell that. It's J-O-I-S-T. Um, it's really small. It's around five uh, kilobytes when, uh, when, when deployed. And it's based on plain web components. So if you look at the code, unfortunately, our audience cannot really see the code here, but you can go there on this website. And um, he's, he's making intense use of... of, um, of uh, of decorators in JavaScript. So he's decorating components um, like you would do potentially in modern Vue.js or in Angular. So the React people usually don't decorate that much. This is not a feature that's that welcome in the React world. But what he built is some kind of service injection. And if you ever did Symfony, if you come from the PHP world or Spring framework, of course, you will be very familiar with this one. So there's some kind of service annotation over, over a class. And this one will, will get instantiated and injected uh, into properties that are marked with injected. And now I'm, I'm talking so much about this little piece of software, but I'm, uh, I was quite blown away that this guy, I don't even have his name here, um, wrote this, this piece of software on, on his own just because he was, uh, I, I guess, a little bit disliking what's going on um, besides that. I think it's Jesse Weisbeck. If you, if, you, if you followed the link, I cannot follow because of the read it, but yes. Yeah, so you were, you were mentioning decorators, and so they actually were a thing, so they are a thing in Vue 2. I think they will be fully dropped in Vue 3. For So the only reason why you would use decorators in Vue 2 was for TypeScript supports, uh, which was not that awesome anyway in Vue 2 with decorators or without. They are being, uh, I think, fully dropped in Vue 3. Uh, which will have uh, much better TypeScript support. I'm myself not a really big fan of decorators. The the only thing that I'm I'm not really I'm not really liking with that. Well, first is because they're not really standard yet. Like they, they've they've changed a lot since the first uh, the first iteration, and because 
I like my code to be much more expressive than that. Like there's a lot of magic. You, you have no idea what's going on when you're looking at code and you have decorators on top of a function. That requires a lot of, I, I believe, uh, a lot of uh, mental overhead. And I am not a huge fan, but I would definitely imagine that for someone who's coming from uh, a language where they're heavily used, uh, it makes a lot of sense. If, if you're a Java Spring developer, you, you see decorators, they call it uh, attributes, I guess, everywhere. So, mm. And in uh, PHP, they are still not part of the language standard, which is still okay. But if you, use, uh, if you, if you look at a, proc, uh, at, a, at a project like Doctrine ORM, for example, you always see these decorators or attributes, mm. annotations inside the, the doc block uh, comments, which is basically the same. So you're annotating things and saying, this is an aspect of that thing. So if somebody's interested in things with that aspect, Here it is. And this is brilliant for dependency injection. And people who use that uh, with dependency injection will notice, hmm, there's some auto-wiring concept in the world since 15 years or so, which is even like looking at, at methods and seeing, well, this one needs a mail service, so we don't have a mail service, let's instantiate one. <laughs> and then it gets totally magic, right? This is what Symfony developers usually know, of course, right? So you just tell, it needs a mailer, so it will do something, wherever this one's coming from. All defaults. So, Stefan, I apparently pasted the wrong link for Joist. Um, we'll have to follow up with the right link for the right Joist that we were actually really discussing uh, sometime. Sometime. Um, in the meantime, we, Danny Blue, if, if you look for him, Danny Blue. Danny Blue Joist. Okay, there you go, Carlos. Maybe you can find it and paste it for us. Um, we have a question. Uh, can TypeScript compile to anything other than JavaScript, or is it just a JavaScript preprocessor? I, I believe this is, on, like, this is a, a JavaScript superset, so I think this only works with JavaScript. I, I'm not sure that this would be, like, this is really intertwined with the, like, the JavaScript uh, behavior. Uh, Now, you could imagine TypeScript being its own language and growing as something, as something separate, like Dino, which is the, like the, basically the new node, uh, is supposed to be able to run TypeScript code like natively. So you could definitely imagine it becoming its own thing. I know it's, it was heavily inspired from C Sharp, but I am not sure that you can compile any other code Uh, with TypeScript other than JavaScript, but maybe I'm wrong. TypeScript is, is just types on top of JavaScript. So mm -hmm. then there's, they, they wouldn't call it a preprocessor. It's a transpiler. So you're transpiling that the TypeScript language and add these um, types constraints um, in, into JavaScript. So if you look at the generated code, you will see lots of code, that generated code, which is saying, If this is type of something and this contains that hidden little interface somebody added of the type dog or whatever animal, then we can be sure that and so on. So it's, it's just generating JavaScript. But I would like to answer the question in a different way. You know, there is a big thing out there. It's called a wasm. And, um, you know, if, if you're a JavaScript developer, maybe you don't care that much about wasm besides, well, consuming it. Sorry, wasm? Wasn't. Wasn't. W-A-S-M. Uh, assembly for the browser. Oh, this was not really correct. Well, assembly is. Close. It's bit code, actually. <laughs> Bytecode is bit code, whatever. So you can compile various languages so they run in the browser. And they, they compile not to JavaScript. They compile to something native that's executed 
by the, by the Wasm um, execution runtime inside the browser. And now you can you can learn Rust. You can do, you can do C. This is what I did last time, compiling C to Wasm. This is a, I had to dig really deeply. You can even compile Go. But here comes the question: Can you compile JavaScript to Wasm? No, you can't. There's <laughs> not like that. Can you compile TypeScript to Wasm? No, you can't. But there's a subset of TypeScript, so something that lives somewhere in between of JavaScript and, and, and uh, TypeScript, which is called AssemblyScript. And you can compile assembly, assembly script to Wasm and import that Wasm file into your JavaScript. Mind blown. But why should yeah. you do that? Learn Rust if you want to do that. I was just going to say that just went on to the list of things I will almost 100% certainly never do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty nice. Like It's a pretty nice uh, entry to uh, the world of, of web, web assembly. And yes, definitely, like if, you, if you're really passionate about that, learning Rust could be a much better idea. But I like the idea of being able to do it even before having all that stuff to learn. Like you can get into it and fall in love with it and fall in love with the speed. And then it will, it will give you uh, that motivation, that drive to go and learn another language. So I think it's pretty powerful. I never heard of it. And that's, that's pretty intriguing. Assembly, yeah, assembly script is is very good if you if you have to run little pieces of code that are compiled in some kind mm -hmm. of execution environment. You know, I'm a blockchain guy. Smart contracts love this kind of technology because you have very slow, very little onboarding. Everybody can do JavaScript more or less, but you compile to some advanced native code that you can compile with different compilers for different execution environments. And then it suddenly makes real sense. So you can use or JavaScript knowledge to build native applications. Hmm. Okay, this leads too far, I guess. We should, we, um, we should get back to your list of cool new JavaScript libraries. I'm already wondering what I would skip, but I would just want to drop the name because it's, it was just blowing me away. Uh, when have you done your last Node.js project, like a backend project, Sarah? Do you remember? Uh, probably a few days ago. A few days ago. Okay. So you're right. quite into Node.js development as well. I was not exactly yeah. sure if you're doing front and back and whatever. So do you like Express.js? It does the job. I usually use it. So I, I've never uh, used it to build like a backend API, but I like it to build mock backend APIs. Like whenever I need, like, so I'm building a front end and I need a mock to either test or just for development purposes, Express does the trick. It's really nice. Because, you know, coming from, from this API platform, PHP stuff, also Java, whatever background, if you go to, to JavaScript, everybody tells you, yes, we got a web framework, it's Express, you say, well, this is, what is it, this baby framework or what, I cannot do anything. But then it is so nice because, you know, you say, okay, if somebody calls a get API, you respond with, so simple. And then you start structuring and then your application grows. And then you notice, oh my God, uh, Express doesn't help me here. So it explodes in code and nobody knows who's calling who. And then there are these big beasts, right? These application frameworks like Nest.js or this other one I just was strong loop. My God, they're doing everything. There's mongoose in between somewhere. You can learn that, but then, then you're completely locked in into them. But then there's overnight JS. And this is exactly what I would like to take away for you people out there overnight JS. If you are a Java developer, PHP developer, whatever, and you're used to these uh, full stack frameworks, they coin themselves, right? If you, if you know them, OvernightJS will feel very familiar. So it's just using Express, it's adding some decorators to it, as we had before. You can say, okay, this is a method that's, or it's a class, it's a controller, it responds to the base route uh, API, 
and then you can add some functions and you can annotate them with getters and methods just as you know from Spring or from Symfony, you name it. Very simple. I'm not exactly sure if I would definitely recommend going with this one, but if you look for something in between, not too hard, not too bad, but that helps you structuring your code, this is one that I know is working in the wild. I know two projects using it. Quite good. Overnight JS. Yes. I think we cannot run to the very end. This is why uh, I would first go with Danfo and then lead over to uh, the doc search, okay? Yeah. Denfo.js. Uh, maybe there are some Python developers around it, right? And all the Python developers are the real cool guys. They can run their code in the browser because they have these no this Jupyter notebooks, and then they can interact with the code and they can plot things. And they are totally like academics, right? So they can they can play inside their their notebooks. Did you know that you can also do this with TypeScript? This is not part of our session today, but look for TSLab. With TSLab, you can have a Jupyter Notebook executing TypeScript, and then you can play around with it. And this is where another library jumps in. You know, why is everybody using Python for data science? Because there's pandas and, and uh, um, data table, right? So everybody loves interacting with uh, large tensors. Like, you can have millions of, millions of data points, but it is really fast. Now, this is only in Python, right? No, it isn't. It's also in JavaScript. It's called Danfo.js, D-A-N-F-O. This is more or less exactly what Pandas is doing, but in JavaScript. You have data tables, you have CSV importers, you even have plots. So you don't need to learn Python anymore. You can just stay in your TypeScript, JavaScript environment, and you can even export what you did in Danfo.js to TensorFlow. So you can stick with TensorFlow.js. You don't have to leave the JavaScript world to do machine learning, D-A-N-F-O.js. Maybe you should try it. This one is quite new. <laughs> Whoa, quite right. And with that, I would like to do a head over, uh, lead over to Sarah about DocSearch. DocSearch v3. So DocSearch, uh, what is the uh, DocSearch? So DocSearch is the free service that we've built. Uh, so it's an Algolia-based service that we've built for uh, open source documentation. If you are building something open source and you have a documentation website, this, web this website should be searchable. You should have you should have search and you should, on top of that, you should have awesome search. And what we decided to do at Angolia a few years ago is to provide search for free. So what we'll do uh, is when we provide doc search to you, we'll crawl your website every 24 hours and we will give you a little snippet of JavaScript to put on your website. And that basically you're gonna wire to your input, to your search input, and it will give you search right away in your browser uh, and on your documentation website. So we are powering tons of uh, open source documentations, especially in the JavaScript world, but not only. And, and it's pretty nice. It works well, people like it. Uh, but we, so we decided, hey, maybe it's time that we upgrade our DocSearch DocSearch.js experience, like the experience that you have on the front end. So far, we had a small uh, dropdown autocomplete coming from uh, coming from the input, and now we've made it a lot better. So, if you want to test it, you can already test it. You can go on v2.docusaurus.com. So this is the v2 of Docusaurus, which is the uh, static website generator from Facebook for documentation. They have the new DocSearch tree v3 on there so basically a, a small round of the the latest features that we have so we have much better ux so the search is now in a modal dialogue instead of being in the drop down which is much better in terms of experience it gives us a lot a lot more space 
to showcase results. We have a we work a lot on accessibility. And when I say we, it's not me. It's uh, my awesome colleagues in the doc search team. Uh, but the accessibility is much better. We have awesome keyboard navigation support. So you can use uh, and browse your search results only from your keyboard, which is pretty nice. Uh, it's fully themable with CSS custom properties. So you can have a built-in dark mode. We have two new exciting features. You have recent and favorite searches. So let's say you're searching, you're searching for something, you enter, so you have the results, you, you enter or you click on it. We will save that as your recent searches. And then you realize like everybody, hey, every time I'm going on that piece of document, on, on that documentation for, for Dentho.js, I always look for the same thing because I cannot remember the syntax even though I use it every day. Well, what you can do is you can favorite it. And so it will stay in your list of favorite searches and you, can, you will be able to access it right away by simply opening the search. Uh, and uh, one thing that they did, which is really nice, is that they pushed the experience, the front-end experience, to be close to native uh, on mobile. So you will have a lot of micro interactions. Uh, you will have optimizations when you are on uh, like a low network environment, if you are on 2G or GPRS. Uh, you will have all those really neat features. Like I know that uh, my teammate Francois, who worked on on the front end, he really studied the spec of the combo box to make sure that this would be compliant and that every piece of interaction that you may have, like that you may expect, either on desktop or mobile, are actually implemented. Combo awesome. boxes are actually a hell to, to develop if you want to get them right in the terms of accessibility. Right. <laughs> I can remember yeah. that. They so are. That was a great list of new JavaScript features. And we're coming up at the top of the hour, so we'll end the episode. But before we do, I have an important contribution to make to this webcast. If I haven't made any contribution up until this point, this is my time to shine because I wore, for everybody, my brand new platform t-shirt today. And I wanted the world to be able to see how cute that is. I was so happy. Our company sent one of these to everybody in the entire company, 200 people got these t-shirts, but that means there are only 200 people with these t-shirts. It's very exclusive and I love it. And I wanted to show that to you. Have they all the same color? This this version of the T-shirt does yes. This um, very tasteful pink. It's not every pink that you can send to everybody in the company, and they'll all be happy. <laughs> it's like it's made for you. Very nice. You yeah. Can see, you can also see the cat if you're on the platform as H console, and something goes wrong, I guess, or something goes right. There, th this cat does make some other appearances. It's true. So the other uh, thing that I wanted to point out to the audience are there are three links on the YouTube um, description for this video where you can try uh, different combinations of JavaScript projects on Platformist Age. You can start a free trial. Uh, there's a deploy on platform button that you can use. And uh, for example, you can deploy Strapi uh, CMS with a Gatsby front end with one click. There's a a Next.js template, and there's a Node.js template as well. So you can see how those backend JavaScript programs run on Platform SH uh, and how we set that up. And beyond that, I would love to say, 
Thank you, Sarah, for bringing your incredible knowledge and expertise and lively discussion and tree-hugging enthusiasm, no, tree-shaking enthusiasm tree to the show. I love to hug trees too, but yeah. You can hug them and I'll shake them. <laughs> <laughs> and Stefan. Well, thank you for having me. That was really nice. And Stefan, you're a great co-host for this. Uh, let's do it again in three months when, again, the JavaScript world will have reinvented itself with a million different frameworks. And it will happen. It will happen. If there's anybody wanting to contribute, oh, just approach us, right? Robert in the first place, me in the second, or oh, as you wish. I'm yes. always here having an open eye. Great. So thanks, everybody. That's it for today. That was Deploy Friday. Tune in next week for the next episode. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Deploy Friday. Be sure to subscribe and check out the program notes for links to software from this episode that you can test now on platform.sh. See you next time.